Dear Broadies, before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion in the United States. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety, and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions in this country. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans and people who live in America. Learn more by visiting choice.crd.co. That's choice.crd.co. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. You can find a list of where to donate in each state at donationsforabortion.com. That's donations, the number four, abortion.com. I have personally started donating to states where trigger laws go into effect immediately. Remember, even if you can only spend $1 or $5, that helps. There are things we can do to fight this, and it is going to take continued focus and community support. So I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. I had to make a decision, right? Like in most things, it's there's a decision to be made. So the decision was take the lesson, right? The decision was take the lesson and sit in it for as long as you need to sit in it and then move on and learn from it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pod Broads. This is a podcast about women in podcasting, and I'm your host, Alexandra Cole. Welcome back, broadies. Today is a very important day because it is the final interview episode for season one of the Pod Broads. Soon, I'll be sharing a special season one episode that offers something a little different than the norm. And as I take a break from publishing new interview episodes between now and season two, which will launch later this fall, I'll be using this time to highlight other shows that I love and that I want you to know about, as well as calling back to some past episodes we just need to revisit. I may even be throwing some other surprises in there along the way too, so keep your ears peeled and your eyes on the new episode download notification because it's still going to be coming through. Now, when I tell you that you're going to want to be careful about drinking anything while listening to this episode, I mean that. I would bet money that this conversation is going to make you laugh at least three times while listening. And yes, I am talking spit laugh funny, hence the danger of water or anything else you might be consuming at this time. For today's episode, I got to speak with Julia Lantigua Williams, a total badass in the podcasting world and someone I have long admired. She is the founder and CEO of Lantigua Williams & Co., a film and audio production company known for podcasts like Latina to Latina, 70 Million, and Feeling My Flow. She was and is the great mind behind the podcasting Seriously Clubhouse group, which has amassed over 25,000 group members, and podcasting Seriously Fund, which you'll learn more about toward the end of this episode. During this chat, she shares about her history in law, how it prepared her during her shift into journalism, and how she entered into the audio world, including her time at one of my all-time favorite podcasts, Code Switch. 
I loved hearing all about her entrepreneurship journey in building this company. She gives a must-know piece of advice for anyone building anything, honestly, and how starting her own business and working in podcasting changed the way that she communicates with her children. It's a perfect extension of last week's episode with Twyla Dang, where we also touch on the intersection between motherhood and podcasting. So if you haven't checked that one out yet, definitely be sure to listen. You're also going to hear a lot of movie references, a lot of invaluable life advice, a confession she has at the end, and in the beginning, Juleka's honestly Game of Thrones character worthy introduction to her identity. So let's start there. Juleka, I'm so excited to be talking to you directly right now. I've heard your voice many a times, mostly on Clubhouse since all that that started, but I've been following your work for a little while, so I'm super stoked to have you here. Welcome. Oh my goodness. Thank you. I am already having fun, so this is a really good start. <laughs> I'm so glad. So I always like to start off and give my guests a chance to intro themselves, who they are outside of their work, and then who they are inside of their work. So go forth with that. Oh, this is great. Okay. So my non-resume intro would be that I am Juleka, daughter of Eugenia and Julianne, (laughs) that I immigrated to the Bronx, New York when I was 10, that I am the oldest of four siblings, and that actually plays a really important role in my life. That I am a mom of two, uh, two boys, which also plays a really important role in my life. And that I am a loud laugher (laughs) and I am a prankster and I am someone who likes to sit on the floor and walk around barefoot. (laughs) I love how specific that is. Yeah, that's 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 a lot about me. And then in my day life which is my work life. I am the Mm -hmm. founder and CEO of Lantigua Williams & Co., which is an independent, award-winning podcast (laughs) studio. (laughs) And we just turned four in June, and it is the best job I've ever had. It's a job that I made for myself and that I month to month to month keep reinventing for myself. Mm. And recently, I've started saying that I am Nick Fury and my team is the Avengers (laughs) because they're all literal superheroes and they're all fantastically gifted. And by themselves, each of them is a force. But together, forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I have to tell you, in such a short amount of time, you've hit on so many points that just resonate with me so much. It's funny, I feel like we've flip-flopped a little bit because you're in DC area right now, which is where I grew up. And then you came down from the Bronx. Yep. And I'm not in the Bronx, but I am in Queens. So the New York City affiliation, you I can just you were in uh, the Bronx. connect. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, I mean, full disclosure, I haven't, I haven't experienced the Bronx that much. I went to a like a one of the swimming areas once a really long time ago and then like briefly been up there to like drop something off at the school my sister was working at so I haven't gotten to fully explore but I know I know it's it's its whole thing you're missing out (laughs) uptown forever Uh, I was close for a little bit I was in Harlem but again I know it's different um so I have to get up there well 
Another thing is, I love that you just mentioned Marvel, but I also wanted to bring up to start us off. You recently did an interview on Between Two Mics, and I definitely checked that out beforehand as a part of my research, (laughs) of course. Um, But what I loved about that part of it is you mentioned how when you were younger, you had a really strong sense of justice, which (laughs) I know is still lasted into adulthood. And also you continuously had adults in your life saying that you're going to be a lawyer. And I have to tell you, I identified so much with that because I had the same experience with my, my parents would constantly say that I'd always be like ready for an argument. So like, no, this isn't just like that kind of thing. And so, so I was just cracking up when I was hearing that take place on that interview. And it made me want to ask you, like, how much of that did you like really identify with and how much of it did you feel like was maybe thrust on you? Because I know you actually ended up going into law. I didn't get that far. Um, but <laughs> So first of all, I'm so happy to hear you say that because sometimes when I'm sharing these stories, I literally go, oh my God, who cares? As I am listening to myself tell the story. <laughs> like, like the producer inside my head producing my own interview is going, really? Mm-hmm. We're yep. going to cut that out. Yeah. You realize. Finish the story, but that's going to get cut. Right. And so the fact that you actually took that away from the interview really makes me feel nice. Um, so thank you for that. Oh, good. So that sense of justice has never left me. Um, it might be because I'm also a Libra, you know, in the <laughs> astrological signs. And so to me, harmony and balance and um, equality and even just fairness is really important to my sense of place and my sense of who I am. And so working for lawyers, which is what I ended up doing for two years as a a legal assistant, was really a way Mm -hmm. to test whether or not I could do it in the formal way, right? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. being a lawyer is ultimately the most formal way that you can practice justice from that vantage point. But then... I have always been a storyteller, which I didn't discover until much later in my life because I thought the thing that I'm destined to do is to right wrongs and to seek out justice and to, you know, bring balance uh, to things. And then I worked for lawyers and I realized, oh, my God, this is definitely not the way I'm supposed to do this. And so when -hmm. that became clear, I had to literally run away to go somewhere where I could ultimately be by myself with my own thoughts, with the enormity of my own decisions about what Mm -hmm. are you going to do? Because since you were five, you thought you were going to be a lawyer, but you don't want to do that. (laughs) So what are you going to do now? Yeah. And as I've said, you know, before, the thing that was always constant in my life was telling stories and listening to stories and mm-hmm. sharing stories. And once that clicked for me, then I just needed to find the correct pathway. And so that became journalism. And I was really lucky that mm-hmm. many of the skills that I had learned you know, working for lawyers really helped me when I became a journalist, you know, like being able to sit Mm -hmm. with mountains of information, being able to translate and distill facts, being able to get information from people who don't know that they're sharing information or who don't know how to share information. And then you having to synthesize that information and then present it in a more formal way. I mean, being able to find anything that existed. I mean, this is one of the things that I used to joke when I was early, early on in my career that I I would say to my editors, don't worry about it. If it exists, I can find it. 
because this is this is how the lawyers <laughs> trained you. You know, like I, mm-hmm. I used to have to find water regulations in provincial China in Mandarin and get them translated. Wow. Right. So once you're able to do that, right, once you're able to find electrical codes for Poland in Polish and get them translated, you can do anything. And mm-hmm. so this was one of the sort of like the, the superpowers that I that I brought into journalism that then I brought into into storytelling. And I think that that's one of the things that has distinguished the work that my company has been able to do, which is that we only deal in reality for now. Right. Because mm. I have always believed mm-hmm. that reality is just so powerful. You don't make, you don't need to make anything up. It's just so powerful. And now we're bringing, you know, real life stories, real life people, everyday heroes, and we're bringing them into context with the factual world that they are helping to shape. Mm-hmm. And I am completely and utterly immersed in that work. And how lucky am I that I get to do that? Every day and that no two days are alike. In the last four years, no two days have been alike in my work. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, totally. I definitely feel parts of that. And I'm like 100% nerding out on the exploration of transferable skills. I always love like mapping out the way that skills you learned here can come into here. And, And everyone has it. And I think some people just don't realize that that identification process that can take place. And it's it's very powerful once you can tap into what you can do and how it can be brought into the next thing that you want to try. Um, but I want to go back real quick to, I know, I know you're laughing. And the minute I said it, I was like, oh God, I just did that thing that everyone does in <laughs> podcasting. But you know what? There is value there. So here I am. Um, but- and this dear reader is <laughs> called a segue. <laughs> Yes, yes, we need that segue. Um, But you mentioned, you mentioned loosely that transition period, but I really like to dig into the specific moment, or maybe it's not a one moment. For some people it is. For some, it's like a patterned situation of like a whole year. But what was this moment that really did start to shift where you were like, oh, I need to do this through storytelling instead. That's the way that this is going to happen for me in a way that I enjoy, in a way that I feel committed to. What was that moment? And what was what was the emotional process through that? Because you mentioned that kind of re-identification of yourself too. I, would, I just want to be there with you. Wow. So I hope you're not going to charge me for this therapy session. Um <laughs> <laughs> Because you sound expensive. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. It's <laughs> okay, pro bono. Okay. It's pro bono. <laughs> so while, while I was working for lawyers, um, there were several moments. And I remember them very clearly because in my head, they were very cinematic. In my, uh, Very clearly mm-hmm. in my head, they were very cinematic. <laughs> and so the setup is that I was working for one of the top five law firms in the country, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a very high skyscraper building on the west side of Manhattan, where often Mm. I would get to the office at 6 a.m. and I would order dinner at 8 and I would be there until midnight. I would take a car home, like a private car that would drive me home. And then I would get another car at 6 in the morning to bring me back to the office. So it was very much sort of like risky business meets sex in the city in 
in the mid-1990s in Manhattan. And so there were these extreme moments of dissonance where I would be, for example, in the back of, of a car, you know, a private car with a chauffeur, you know, driving down to, for example, the Bank of New York, you know, the Reserve Bank of New York, mm -hmm. with an envelope, a very casual-looking, you know, manila envelope full of stock certificates for a company that was worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars because our our law firm was handling the IPO for that company. And so I'm sitting there going, yeah. okay, Juleka, 22-year-old immigrant who grew up in the Bronx, what is happening here? What reality are you living in right now? Right? <laughs> Whose life are you embodying right now? That yeah. quite literally in your lap, sitting casually in a you know, in a 30-minute ride downtown to the to the Reserve Bank of New York, you have the entire worth of a company. Um, but you're living in a rented one-bedroom apartment in Washington Heights, right? And so there were these moments right. where I would observe what was happening with my life and start with, what am I doing here? How did I get here? But more importantly, think about, is this it? Like, is this, is this what I've achieved? Is this the thing that is going to be the culmination of all mm. of the ambition that is sort of swirling around in my mind and in my heart, And so there were lots of moments like that where yeah. collectively they really, they really started to just chip away at the illusion of success that we have, especially a kid who grew up poor in the South Bronx with parents who worked four jobs their entire lives, right? Mm -hmm. That you get the corporate job, you, you get all the trimmings, you get the expense account, but for what? What are you doing with all of that? Mm -hmm. Oh, you are helping corporations to eschew their responsibility for the environmental damage that they've caused at Superfund sites? Is this what you're doing this week? Oh, wow, Juleka. <laughs> That's what you're doing this week. Don't sugarcoat it to yourself, mm -hmm. right? Don't justify it. Mm -hmm. This is what you're doing this week, right? And so after a few of those, and then after applying to law school, getting into law school, doing all of that realizing this is it. This is the moment where you have to decide. Mm. This is it. But I didn't have the clarity at all. I did not have the clarity because I'd had blinders on like a racehorse and I'd just been on yeah. this singular pursuit. So I just took myself out of the running completely and I moved to Japan because I thought I just need to be by myself. I don't know anyone in Japan. Yeah. I don't speak the language in Japan. I just need to be by myself because, and I want to be hard to reach. That was the other thing. So back then, mm. I don't even think I had a cell phone. It was 1998. Um, no, I probably had a cell phone, okay. but it didn't work internationally. It was really expensive for you to, so the only thing you could do was email. Right. Um, and so I thought, okay, great. I will not be reachable if I go all the way there. And then I took I took quite a few months. I got a job teaching English, and and then mm -hmm. I just spent a lot of time by myself, not speaking to anyone because I didn't speak the language. Only really speaking in English to my students uh, for thirty minute mm -hmm. intervals at a time when I was drilling them for their yeah. conversational English. And then you know, a few months in, realized. It's writing. The thing is writing. That's the thing. That's the thing. <laughs> And then, of course, immediately imposter syndrome kicks in and you go, yeah, but how are you qualified? Mm -hmm. How are you qualified? Right. You, you and your government degree? 
What? How are you qualified? <laughs> you you wrote opinion pieces in the student paper. You're not qualified. And so, you know, being the dutiful immigrant, you, you mm. find ways to become qualified. So I applied to grad school from there. And as soon as I started that process, the clarity started to, to come in. And then all of the, yeah. the lines in my life that led here to that point also became really clear. I've been mm-hmm. writing, you know, stories and bad poetry since forever. <laughs> yeah. I also yeah. remember that from I'm... that interview. I was cracking up about the, the bad poetry. I was like, I feel you. Oh, it was I, terrible. I submitted some and I'm glad it didn't get published. <laughs> they were terrible. They were like... terrible. They were terrible. <laughs> But you needed those to get to where you were. They were part of the process. Absolutely needed those. Yeah. And so I know you spent a long time in journalism and you've mentioned that. And then then you started to get into audio. And I definitely want to hear a little bit of that process of mm-hmm. that shift. And what like some of the, the key marker points you would say kind of led you then into creating Lantigua Williams and Co. and entering into the entrepreneurial space? Yeah. So, I mean, so this is a really linear story, which is that I was at the Atlantic and Serial um, had just come on and everyone was listening mm-hmm. and talking about Serial every day. So I started listening and then that led me to listen to other podcasts and ask people for, for recommendations. So I came into podcasting purely as a fan um, and as a, as a fan mm-hmm. of good storytelling, you know, and listening because you know this when when you make things, it does not matter that you enjoy other things. You are always learning how that thing is made. Right. So if you make Mm -hmm. audio and you go watch a movie, you're always looking at how did they make that? Where did they put the camera? What's (laughs) up with that sound effect? If you make books, you're same. Whenever you are someone who makes things, you really cannot enjoy something without trying to also understand how they made the thing. I'm sorry if I've just ruined you for life with that little piece of truth, but it is a fact. It is an absolute fact. And it's, you know, we suffer for it. Because there's no pure enjoyment. If you're a maker, there's no pure enjoyment for you. Okay? It's just, it is what it is. Okay, but now that I've ruined your day, I apologize. Um, So I'm sitting listening to these podcasts saying, how did they do that? Okay, rewind 30 seconds. Okay, let me see how they build up to that moment. Right? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then after four or five episodes, you start to notice the tools in the narrative Mm -hmm. and you start to notice Mm -hmm. the pacing and you start to notice exactly when the narrator comes in and when the silence is used right and so then Mm -hmm. I became just a student of the craft because I was like this is so smart you know just as someone who tries to write well right because that was my that was my medium I was writing print and I was really happy at that but then you start to enter into this other world where you discover that there's this writing with sound? Wait a minute. What? What? <laughs> how, how are they doing this magic? What? I, I need to peer behind the curtains. Um, <laughs> so I just started listening really avidly. And, you know, right around the same time, I was recruited by NPR to come and lead a Code Switch. And I thought, mm-hmm. are you serious? Like, right. So I was cool. like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a, still one of my favorite shows. I was like, I was like oh, are you so serious? cool. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. I get to go do journalism 
and I get to go tell stories and I get to go tell stories about people of color. And wait, I get to learn how to do radio and audio. (laughs) Yes. Sign me up. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it was just an incredibly fortuitous timing that that all happened in the same year. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, so again, recognizing the transferable skills that I had coming in from, you know, 18 years of journalism. So I applied all of those skills, but then also recognizing, oh my God, I have so much to learn. So I basically, you Mm -hmm. know, apprenticed myself to our senior producer (laughs) and shadowed him. And wherever he let me be that he was working, I would be there in the studio, in the booth, at his desk, asking him to send me roughs, Mm -hmm. asking him to walk me through the process of putting things together. If another producer was working on scripting with our host, I'd want to be in the room so I can watch them work, so I can learn about, you know, like... How do you do this? And so I just spent months doing that and and trying to just absorb as much as as, as I possibly mm-hmm. could while contributing all of the experience, all of the knowledge, all of the skills that I brought from more traditional journalism, you know, print journalism. My background is is very much writing, but it's not journalistic writing. So I can never like say that I could speak to that as an expert or someone who's gone through that that type of industry. And so at the time that you had gotten that opportunity with Code Switch and specifically Code Switch, as we know, is focused on stories about people of color um, and issues that really mm-hmm. impact them. And prior to that work and entering into that um, like audio form of journalism and storytelling, what had been your experience with journalism and being able to cover stories like that? Was that like a really big push and pull or was there any, oh, I know it was just, it was a completely different time, I would say, in terms of what yeah. the discourse was. So I'm curious what your experience was and observations so were. So I have to say happily that I had always done stories about people of color and I don't yeah. know if it was fortune or stubbornness or a combination of both, mm. right? <laughs> so... <laughs> So, you know, I'm in Japan. I get into Boston University for a master's in journalism. Mm-hmm. I, I go straight from Japan to, well, to Miami to hang out with my family for three months. And then I go to grad school. And out of grad school, yeah. I get a job as a managing editor of Urban Latino Magazine, a small boutique magazine in New York that's writing for and mm-hmm. about Latinos, you know, in, in the U.S., right? So there's my first official publishing job, right? And then from Urban mm-hmm. Latino... I go to work for two editors at Crown. So I I went into Crown to be an editorial assistant. One of those editors is today one of the most important editors in the Black publishing space, Chris Jackson. He was my boss when he Hmm. was still just an associate editor at Crown. So he was coming up, right? And so we're working on Ta-Nehisi Coates' books. We're working on Danielle Smith's books. We're working on all of these absolute stellar Black writers who are now, you know, the public intellectuals of our time. And so soaking up everything Mm -hmm. that I learned um, that I could possibly learn in book publishing about telling these these kinds of stories. From there, I go to Honey Magazine, like a teen Vogue slash young Vogue for Black women. You know, there I'm working with kick-ass Black women editors, producers, photographers. From there, I go to uh, XXL Magazine, which is basically the source 
but a much later version of the source, The Authority on Hip Hop. I'm there for two years. Then from there, I go to Giant. Right. So my entire career, I've always gone to <laughs> places amazing. where I could tell stories about people of color, whether it was uh, on the artistic side, on the newsmaker side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really natural. And then I took a little bit of a hiatus, got married, had my children, was a college professor <laughs> um, at a community college in Connecticut where 90% oh. of my students were people of color, right? So you see a pattern here. Yeah. But while I was teaching, I never gave up, you know, I never gave up the hustle, the media hustle. So I was mm-hmm. writing for Jet Magazine. I was editing for Jet Magazine. I was freelancing for a bunch of places, still trying to keep my journalistic toolkit sharp. And then after that, I ended up getting recruited to head a, a desk, a reporting desk at National Journal called Next America. And Next America mm-hmm. was basically Code Switch before Code Switch was Code Switch. It had been started a few years before okay. Code Switch launched. And it was a small group of about six or seven of us who reported at the intersection of race and politics, race and economics, race and education, race and health. And so Mm -hmm. that was an incredible opportunity to have the resources of a national journal of an Atlantic media to bring to bear Mm -hmm. on these kinds of stories. Um, And then about a year and a half after I was there, the entire team at Next America was absorbed into the newsroom at The Atlantic. And so that's how... That's how I ended up there. But even at the Atlantic, there was an opportunity to become a criminal justice reporter. So I raised my hand and I was like, yes, me, please. I, I, I volunteer as tribute. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, man. I'm loving all these references. <laughs> and so so I was still able you know, to stay yeah, yeah. in, I mean, at this point, you know, 18 years in, it's not even a beat, mm-hmm. right? Now this is where my core journalistic knowledge is is really based right. on. It's these years of telling these stories and understanding the cross-sections of all kinds of yeah. people in the United States. And so I, you know, like, I love that we have this push now for intersectionality and I love how aware we're becoming of the need for these kinds of stories. But I consider myself so Mm -hmm. privileged that I've always been able to tell these kinds of stories, Mm. you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's why I asked the question, because I I had like heard a couple of the publications that you had written for, but I didn't realize it was that much. Like, I feel like you really did get to just be fully immersed and... I think I'm thinking of being on the Twitter sphere and just seeing how that isn't the case for so Mm -hmm. many of these publications Mm -hmm. or so many of these journalists who are like trying to get these stories out about like different marginalized groups. And a lot of these bigger like journalistic corporations are just like, hmm, no, or okay, but we're going (laughs) to report on it in some fucked up way. Um, So that's... (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) I'm glad to hear that wasn't your experience. Hey, friends, just a brief pause from this conversation so I can tell you about The Wave Podcasting. The Wave is a company that helps women grow their podcasts so they can build an audience and get paid. They offer educational resources and a digital community, of which I am a part of, and I've gotten to meet some pretty dope women and get some great tips along the way. Plus, the founder, Lauren Popish, is a huge reason I've been able to start this podcast. She helped me find the perfect recording equipment for my setup and just get 
really comfortable with jumping in for the first time. And here's what's cool. They have a free mini guide that will help you kickstart your podcast growth strategy that you can download today by going to the show notes to find the link to their website. And when you're ready, you can purchase a complete guide to podcasting and use my code PODRALAND, P-O-D-D-R-A-L-A-N-D-10 to get 10% off the total cost. So ladies, come podcast. Okay, one more important PSA. Here's my challenge for you. Take a screenshot right now of this episode and share on social media with a tag to Podgerland and the guest. I want to know that you're listening and I want to shout you out. Also, are you signed up for Podgerland's email list yet? Because as much as I love social media and connecting through there, I'm also preparing for its demise and I want to make sure that I stay in touch with you and we have control over our communication. Not only will you get important updates about this show, you'll get recommendations of other women-hosted podcasts, news related to podcasters you love, discounts on my cute-ass merch, and much more. Okay, let's get back into this interview. I definitely want to hear a little bit about the inception of the idea for the company. Like, why why did that come up when it came up for you? And then we'll get into a little more of the entrepreneurial into relationship type crossover because I definitely want to explore that a bit. Sure. So when I got the job to come down to lead Next America, I was living in Connecticut with my family. Mm-hmm. And we were going to move down here. And that, you know, my husband had a plan. He was going to start his own company too. And so, every, you know, ever the practical person, I thought, <laughs> let me just have a plan B in case this whole moving to another state situation doesn't work <laughs> out. And for a while, I had been sort of like fantasizing out loud about starting something. Yeah. Right. A few years ago, I was going to start a literary agency to represent Latino writers. Then I started having kids and I couldn't find enough children's books with black and brown kids in them. So I was all fired up to start a children's publishing house. So so you get it, right? Yeah. So, so, so I thought I've got plenty of plan Bs, but let me actually incorporate something Mm -hmm. right let me actually take a formal step so I incorporated the company in 2015 and and just said this is my plan b if anything happens Mm. I've got something that I can jump into and so paid my taxes 2015 paid my taxes 2016 (laughs) I was happily employed um both years but still you know being very practical had my plan b and then um podcasting Mm -hmm. happened And I just fell madly deeply in love. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, how lucky am I that after 20 years of doing something that I already love, Mm -hmm. because I already love the work that I do. But after 20 years of doing that, I get to learn a completely new way Mm -hmm. to do the thing that I love. Yeah. What? That doesn't happen. Right? And so then... That sort of like yearning to do something on my own, that yearning to build something really coalesced well with this love and this passion for podcasting. And I thought, okay, it's now or never. Mm -hmm. So let's do this. Um, Talked it over with my family, made a plan, uh, gave myself a year Mm. um, and said, if nothing happens, I'll go get a job. I've always worked. I have no issue with working. I will go get another job. Mm -hmm. Right. But I knew that I, I needed to take a chance. And miracles started to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Just 
people just being incredibly supportive mm-hmm. and people introducing me to other people and people sharing our website and people setting up uh, conversations and calls with other people and people saying, hey, you know, I have a small little job that you can do here or hey, can my friend wants to launch a podcast, can you help him out? And then we just started building from there and, you know, just being really intentional about the relationships, Mm -hmm. uh, which was, I think, something I understood very early about podcasting, which is still very much true about podcasting. It is about the relationships and it is about being in a mutually beneficial society, Mm -hmm. right? I really think of podcasting as a mutually beneficial society where we are here for the greater good in, in not an abstract way at all, but in a very literal way. Like, how can I help you today? Who do you need to be put into contact with today? How can we promote your show? Mm-hmm. Do you need, like, what do you need today to make this happen? And coming into a new space as someone who had zero, not zero, very little experience and receiving that type of support, it really, you know, it really elevated me. Yeah. And it really sustained me through what, you know, the first two years were really hard as, as the first two years of any company are. Mm-hmm. I went through all of the things that every entrepreneur in the history of entrepreneurs has gone through. Every story, right? But that's par for the course. Yeah, That is how you earn the stripes of being an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. You have to go through that. And as, as, as you know, we, we are doing well. We are doing work that we're really proud of. Mm-hmm. We are doing work that attracts more work that we're proud of Mm -hmm. and so this wonderful cycle um you know I have the best team in the business and I defy anyone (laughs) to challenge me on that (laughs) I'm having like a Mortal Kombat reference now in my head I don't know I'm ready (laughs) listen listen I am ready okay I I have two boys in my life so you know that I have a full Black Panther get up I have lightsaber Like, I have the Wolverine Claws. I am ready. Ooh, the Wolverine Claws. That's great. I would love that. <laughs> Amazing. Well, so what? what is one of, like, the more, I guess, like, glaring memory like memories of the mistake the thing that helped earn you that entrepreneurial stripe in those first two years like what's one of the major ones that comes to mind that you're okay sharing (laughs) oh so I read a lot about entrepreneurship because there's so much to learn Uh and I especially read a lot those first those first couple years and one of the things that I learned is that every entrepreneur ever has pursued something that is commonly referred to as a shiny object. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a thing. It's an idea. It's a product. And pursued it with such gusto and resources and energy only to have it flame out and have either been a costly <laughs> lesson <laughs> oh, no. or been a good cocktail, you know, cocktail story. Mm-hmm. And so I have that. I have my my shiny object <laughs> for my first year okay. <laughs> as a podcaster. You, you have me on the was... edge of my seat. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited to hear this. <laughs> so so that first year, someone pitched me a story about a podcast uh, w- that we ended up calling Shot Callers. Okay. And it was... The concept I thought was great. If the concept was very high end, it was to interview sort of high end people 
in the service industry, so sommeliers mm. and and people who work in in whiskey and people who work in champagne and grand uh, mixologists, mm. master mixologists, right? And I was like, oh my god, this is great! And having worked in magazines, I also knew that liquor advertising is very profitable, and so I thought we could turn we could turn this into something profitable. Right. And so you know, inexperience. <laughs> uh, I invested a ton of money into getting that produced, buying equipment. Uh, we found a co-host who was uh, a, a master, a New York City master um, mixologist, very, very high-end bartender. Mm-hmm. And we went to her place. We hired a producer. And we started bringing in all these people who were really at the top of the game in uh, restaurateurs and hoteliers and people who worked in wineries and all kinds of people. And the interviews mm-hmm. were fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So we put out like maybe 15 episodes and we're getting no traction with advertising and we're getting no traction in terms of income. And, you know, we throw a launch party and we print s- stickers and I trademark that they like, all of the bells and whistles because I'm a, you know, I'm a baby entrepreneur and I want to follow all of the rules and I want to check all the to-do lists of all the things an entrepreneur <laughs> is supposed to do. And a year and a half later, I realized, wow, I spent probably a full third of my first year budget on this podcast that oh, didn't wow. make any money. No. And then I realized that the person who brought the idea, my so-called partner was never going to pay any of this money oh my god (laughs) and so you know i had to make a decision Mm -hmm. right like in most things it's there's a decision to be made so the decision was take the lesson Mm -hmm. right the decision Mm -hmm. was take the lesson and sit in it for as long as you need to sit in it, which is about a week. I usually need to solve for just about a week. I'm good after that. Take the lesson and then move on and learn from it. Mm-hmm. And so later in my learning about being an entrepreneur, I learned that this is called the shiny object. Mm-hmm. And that most entrepreneurs have a story like that from early on. Mm-hmm. And that the really successful entrepreneurs try to minimize the shiny objects <laughs> as they mature <laughs> as entrepreneurs and stop being entrepreneurs and become fully fledged business people, mm. you know, which I feel like when we make it past year five, I'm not going to call myself an entrepreneur anymore. You know, yeah. I feel like yeah. if most businesses, 75% of businesses fail in the first five years. So I don't think that that's going to be us knock on wood. And, you know, after that, I, I will, I will be able to be like, I graduated from entrepreneurship, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and I got my shiny, I've got my shiny object. And then I learned this, this was one that took my breath away. I was reading um, Fortune magazine, I think it was, Uh and I read in some article about, you know, big time entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. that in the United States, the average age of an entrepreneur, of a successful entrepreneur when they started their company is 42. Mm. I was 42 when I started my company. Nice. <laughs> so I was like, okay, <laughs> I am right on time. Look at me. I, I didn't even know it. And I'm right on time. 
that's nice. That's especially nice to have happen like after, after, after. going through that experience, yep. you know? <laughs> You're like, that's exactly what I needed to see. I also, I feel like we, we just swapped services here. Like you got a little bit of therapy. I got, we got some like entrepreneur masterclass. It's great. It's perfect. Um, <laughs> you got a good laugh out of it. Yeah, exactly. You burn some calories in the process. <laughs> so you've said before that, in doing this in being an entrepreneur and just learning how to move differently in this space, it's also impacted the way that you parent. It's impacted the way that you, you know, engage in your relationships. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about that. If there's like certain just like shifts that you can identify began to happen or just those conscious decisions that have come into place since you've now had this become a part of your identity? That's such a good question. Thank you for that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because I, it absolutely is the case for me that being so into the work that I'm doing definitely really positively impacts other parts of my life. So mm -hmm. on the parenting side, when I was working for other people, I would just say, mommy has to go to work. Mama has to go to work. I'm going to be late because I have work. Work was always this vague concept mm. uh, for my children that happened outside. But because I now work from my office in my house, work is very personal. It's in our space. Mm -hmm. You know, if I am in my room, in, in my office, then I am working. And so now, and since I started the company, I talk about you know, mama starting a company and it means that she's in charge of everything and it means that she's responsible for other people and it means that she has clients. And, and then sometimes, you know, when I set up my studio, I showed them what my little studio was in my closet and what the mic was and what the foaming was, and what the foam thing was for. Like, I really get them involved. And then sometimes when they are upset because I'm working and they want me to go play, you know, for a holla, mm -hmm. I'm like, no, but I like what I'm doing. Mm. So I don't want to stop what I'm doing to go play video games because I'm enjoying what I am doing. Mm. Right. So this was the other big shift that work for me in their eyes went from being something abstract that I did somewhere else to being something that I like doing that yeah. is important to me and that they have to respect and give me space to do. Yeah. And so I think that was a really important shift because now, especially the older one who's 11, who's now thinking about, well, what am I, what job am I going to have? What kind of professional am I going to be? What happens after I go to college, right? So he's having all of these yeah. abstract concepts in his mind. Now I can talk to him and give him concrete examples from things that he has seen me do. Mm -hmm. And often when I'm on a team call or when I'm on a call mentoring, I'm also in the kitchen cooking, mm -hmm. right? And so they overhear my side of conversations where I'm talking to people about work and they'll ask me questions after. And I, you know, I have a, you know, 99% transparency and honesty policy with my kids mm -hmm. up until, you know, things are not age appropriate, right. obviously. And so I'm always happy for them to say, okay, what does it mean when you say this? Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's a transcript? Why, why, why are you talking about, what does that mean? You know? Um, 
And I love, I love that now my work has gone from being abstract to being concrete and tangible to them. And mm-hmm. actually, my youngest one, I wrote with his godmother, mm-hmm. who is a playwright. Mm-hmm. I co-wrote a piece of audio that he starred in oh, that's so cool. that was produced by Ochenta Studio. Cool. And it's part of their series of uh, Ochenta Cuentos, 80 Stories, mm-hmm. which is about the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so he really understands the work that we're doing um, because he and I had rehearsals. We had a cast read. We had the recording. I mean, it was so wonderful to be able to share that uh, with them. That's so cool. I There's two things I, I love about that that I just kind of, I guess, want to impress upon my listeners. But first off, what you just said, I think it's so funny and awesome that I feel like your, your children have a better understanding of what podcasting entails than most listeners do <laughs> at this point, which is pretty cool. Um, and because <laughs> it, it is very mysterious, like until you get into it, it's like, so how do you all spend your time? Um, so I think that's cool. And I also really, really love the piece just because I think it's a great takeaway for any parent and something that I feel like I would love to like remember as I become a parent is helping your kids understand how to respect what's important to you as an individual and that it like lets you hang on to that part of you separate from your kids, your partners, your friends, just like who you are and also teaching them how to respect other pe- what, what brings other people joy and to, you know, like I just, I think that's amazing. I love that. Oh, and to be quite literal about it, um, outside of my office, there is a <laughs> there is a blue neon on air sign that I turn on Amazing. when I am on an important call, and they know that they cannot even think about touching my door. <laughs> the neon sign is on. That's great. That's a wonderful. And so visual. it has really taught them about boundaries. Yeah. Well, know? and it's a fun way to do it too, though. Like I yes. feel like that's such a like. Like not even ki- not kid friendly. I don't really like that terminology, but it's just it makes it more engaging and like an like I don't know. It makes it feel like something special and rather than just like a cold like closed door. Like no, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you have a lot of different shows um, with your company, and I wanted to specifically ask you today about the how to talk to mommy and poppy about anything show. And the question that I want to ask you about that one is because it features a lot of different people's experiences, but there's that central piece of like being a part of an immigrant family and what that means. And then you have these experts come on and kind of be able to respond to it. And hopefully I did a good job of rounding that up. Please feel free to fill in the blanks that I may have missed. Um, But I wanted to ask you, in creating this show, has there been anything that's really surprised you or has it all resonated? Well, <laughs> the first thing that surprised me is how candid people can mm. be, you know, because there is still very much um, a code of silence mm. uh, in the U.S. about the immigrant experience, which is part of why we misunderstand it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, generations ago, they wouldn't recognize that and they wouldn't teach their children their native language so that their kids could assimilate faster. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there was so much push to blend, blend, blend. And 
what has surprised me the most is how candid people are on the show. And after the candor comes the, this depth of understanding. Mm-hmm. And in in the first part of, of the show, you never hear me kind of like Google and Gaga mm-hmm. at my guests. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> because of the brilliance. Yeah. Which they are making sense of their situation. But like literally every like there's a question and then after the response there's me going oh my god you just I'm floored how did you even conceptualize that Mm. I'm like I am constantly learning how to understand and how to elucidate some of the experiences that I've had yeah and I love that about that show I love that about that show um the other thing that surprises me is that, you know, I am 45 and I sometimes talk to people who are 25 and 35 and literally it is the exact same experience. (laughs) So so sometimes I just want to be like, seriously, this is still happening. This is still happening. Why is this still happening? We don't know better by now. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It's crazy. I I really enjoyed the format. Um, and thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I think it, it's it's kind of that perfect piece that we've been discussing throughout this whole this whole interview is just really giving space to the storytelling aspect so that you can then really dig into it after. And I think that that's really important. And also just giving space to these people's voices in how they share their story. Um, Yeah, I just, I always really appreciate that. Thank you for that. When we were piloting the show, my producer would cut two versions Mm -hmm. of the testimonial, one with me interviewing the person and one without me. And I was always like, get me out of there. (laughs) I have no business. I'm clearly interrupting the flow. Get me out of there. And I'm so glad that I stuck to my gut on that Yeah, yeah. Because I love actually going back to older, earlier episodes and listening to some of those early stories. Mm -hmm. And because I don't remember the mm-hmm. interview, I can just enjoy the person telling their story. Yeah. You know, and I really love that. Yeah, definitely. Um, we haven't talked about podcasting seriously yet, and that's such an important piece of the work that you do. So let's take a moment to uh, just hear a little bit about that. Also, how you're so good at just keeping the vibe that you want in your clubhouse rooms for ser- <laughs> podcasting seriously, which I really appreciate. Um, you're not afraid to interrupt people to be like, mm, this is actually what we're talking about right now. And also being really like clear on when you're ending those, <laughs> those meetings. So yeah, just tell my listeners a little bit about what you do there. I know the fund is a big thing, but I also just want to yes. give you space to talk about. So the floor is yours. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yes. um, so podcasting seriously is something we started last year year that we love and that is making all kinds of friends yes. I mean this is the thing that I love about podcasting like you make a thing and then the thing goes out and brings you back friends yes, yes I mean exactly. where else does that happen <laughs> like, 
every single time we put something out we just make a ton more friends mm-hmm. and so that's how podcasting seriously started when everything shut down last year and we couldn't go anywhere to see our friends um i thought okay well let's figure out a way to get together with our friends. And so I reached out to Denise Bennett, who's a wonderful event producer. She was one of the folks who put on Work It for many years. And I said, Denise, I have this idea. What do you think? And she was like, let's do it. And so I volunteered, you know, I volunteered as tribute. Um, (laughs) Always. Always to test this crazy idea. We put it together, we named it, we created a website, we piloted the thing, and it was so much fun. It was so much fun. So we thought, let's do it again. So we did a series of three, and then we did a series of three more, and then we did a series of three more. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, we were a year into it, Mm -hmm. and it was incredible. And so this community started to build of these amazing creators who get together, you know, once, once a month to just really go in on a really particular part of podcasting. And then from there, we realized, okay, we've got something really cool here. Um, how do we expand on this? And so I thought newsletter, mm-hmm. because we're only getting together once a month, but there's so much that we want to share. Right. Um, and so how do, how do we continue to share and create this community newsletter? So we started a newsletter, which is, curated by Manuela Bedoya, who's our social media editor, who's wonderful. And sure enough, as soon as we put the newsletter out, we started making even more friends. <laughs> and now we have advertising in the newsletter. And it That's just great. blows my mind. Like every week, some other small miracle happens. And then last year, um, I had the, the opportunity to be invited to judge a couple of national awards. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't say which, but... Um, <laughs> In the process of, of judging these national awards, I obviously got to see the back of the house. Mm. And I realized that although there were some really great, you know, entries, very noteworthy and, and very award-winning entries, <laughs> there were there was also a whole level of, of work that I knew existed. Yes. That was equally qualified. Yes. And I saw that once, twice, three times, like at the highest levels of awards. And I thought there's got to be something that we can do about this, Mm -hmm. right? There's got to be something, right? And so I called Ken Ikeda at Air Media, who had literally started his job like a month before. He had never met me. I had never emailed him. (laughs) But I was like, never. Cold, cold, right? So I started a Zoom conversation with him like this. Hi, Ken. always a good sign to start the conversation by saying yes to me before I even tell you what the idea is. (laughs) And he's like, how'd you like a nice to meet you? (laughs) And I was like, okay, just say yes. So I can tell you what the idea is. (laughs) He's like, can it be a conditional yes? And I said, okay, fine. You don't know me. So it can be a conditional yes. So I tell him the idea for the fund to raise money to refund independent producers the cost of submitting their work to awards. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no one's done this? And I said, no one has done this. He's like, are you serious? And I said, yes, I'm serious. Isn't it like the most obvious thing that should be done? And he's like, yeah, that is like a very obvious thing that should be done. Why has no one done this? (laughs) And I said, I don't know, but you and I are going to do it. So are you in? He's like, yeah, we're in, we're in. He's like, I already said yes. <laughs> right, exactly. We already got the yes. 
<laughs> and so with him on and with Air on as a partner, as mm-hmm. a fund partner, and as the fund's pro bono fiscal sponsor, mm. I just started to call other friends. So I had a call, I think later that week with Steve Pratt at Pacific Content. Again, had he and I had never met in person. We had never exchanged a conversation. <laughs> Somehow we I had gotten onto his calendar. He had gotten into my calendar. And at the end of the call, lovely, lovely person. At the end of the call, I go, oh, by the way, Steve, we're doing this podcasting fun and it's this and this and this. You guys want in? And he pauses and goes, give me a day. I'll be right back. 24 hours go by. He emails me. We're in. That's amazing. (laughs) So then Pacific Content comes on as a partner, as a fun, as a fun partner, which was amazing. And then I hit up some more friends at APM for Bea, the creator and host of Our Body Politic came in as, oh, yeah. as one of the initial funders. And I, hit awesome. up all, I mean, I hit up all my friends in podcasting. Yeah. Um, Lindsay at Pandora immediately said yes. Cause again, all the conversation starts with just say yes. And then I'll tell you what the idea is. So <laughs> Lindsay knows the, he, Lindsay knows the drill. He's like, okay, fine. Yes. Do you like that? Now tell me what I just said yes to. <laughs> So it's just been wonderful um, to just put this idea in front of people and have people respond so overwhelmingly. We've raised over $40,000 to give away and we really want to give it all away. (laughs) So if you're listening, please go to podcastingseriously.com, sign up for the newsletter and then submit your um, reimbursement application. It can be for any award that you've applied to in the last year. Um, If you're planning to apply please apply, like tell your friends to apply. We really want to give this money away. Everyone here is working pro bono. We're working pro bono, um, AR, Pacific content. If you're in Canada or the United States, you can think specific content, Canadians, you can, <laughs> you can participate. And so we just want to, we just want to support the creators who are in this space who we know are just doing amazing work. That's great. Yeah. I, I love it so much. I've, I'm, very much into getting indie creators the recognition they deserve um because while there are many makes a difference yeah it does and i mean there are network shows that i absolutely love but there is so much more content out there that is amazing and that needs more eyes on it so i think it's great that you're doing that and i also totally co-signed the newsletter it's probably it's like one of the most attractive ones out there um like yeah like it's just it's it's like digestible and attractive, which I find is difficult somehow for a lot of uh, podcast That's newsletters. All Manuela. That is all Manuela. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very <laughs> impressed. So please let her know I'm very impressed because uh, I have a newsletter and I'm like, I love I do it, but I don't do it as well as other people that I see. Um, I can admit that. Um, so... <laughs> All right. So now I've got three rapid fire questions for you to for us to finish up today. Um, My first one is who would you name as your podcast mentor or someone you emulate in this space? One. You can name a couple. You could do a couple. (laughs) None of these people can be cut from this list. Okay. You edit this. It'll be (laughs) rapid in another way. Okay. Uh, (laughs) All right. Uh, Martina Castro, Laurie Martinez, Twyla Dang, Chris Colbert, uh, Amy Westerbell, Alicia Menendez, mm. uh, Jen Chien, Cedric Wilson, uh, and everybody on my team. Oh my gosh, amazing. I, 
I'm note taking. I recognize a few names on there, but I definitely don't know everyone. So I'm going to do I'm going to have to do a little Googling after this. Um, Great. Thank you. Um, And then when you are just listening to podcasts for pleasure, so not any work related ones, what would we find on your queue when you have the time? Okay, so I have to confess that I am one of those people who waits until the season is over. So I can binge. Ooh, okay. Okay, tell me more. I hate (laughs) waiting for new episodes. I'm sorry. I think that that makes me a bad podcaster. But... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I'm so impatient. So, like... When Floodlines came out, mm. I was like, no way, not even going to touch you until I can listen to the whole thing uninterrupted. <laughs> so I'm sorry, but that's the truth, right? And so when, for example, Containers came out a couple of years ago and I stopped after the second episode because, again, I thought, no way, you're not doing this to me. You will not toy with my emotions. <laughs> I will wait seven weeks for your last episode to drop. And then I will listen to the entire thing in one day. That's exactly what I did. And so what I, what I like are long form narrative investigative. Mm. That's my jam. And one, because again, I really, really believe that reality is the best form Mm. of storytelling. And when it is elevated in the audio form, it's, transformative Mm -hmm. right and so i want to be in that space uninterrupted for as long as possible which is why i binge yes yes. that's really why i binge okay yeah because i don't want to break that i don't want to break the pleasure of listening to something that is beautiful and intellectually rigorous Mm -hmm. and that engages all my senses because of my imagination and so you catch me listening um to those long-form narrative and then I also love a great interview so Masters of Scale How I Built This the Ezra Klein show um uh, Jamel's show like any long-form interview where you've got a host that is intrinsically invested Mm -hmm. in the person that they're talking to yeah not a host who is being transactional mm-hmm. like i you know you you are an interviewer so you know when an interview <laughs> is transactional yeah for sure you can tell in 30 seconds and so i you know i don't i don't like those those types of interviews <laughs> Definitely. Well, I'll I'll say one thing that maybe will make you feel better about uh, not listening when the episode comes out right away. You're really helping their numbers between seasons, which is really important for sometimes getting a next season. Thank you. So you're giving Thank them that you. backlog downloads. We need that. <laughs> the long tail, right? Yes. I'm contributing to the long tail. Yes, it's very important. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks for that. I'm going to remember that. Totally, totally. Um, okay. And then final question is, where can my listeners find you and how can they support you and your work? I am on Twitter. I am on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. We're at LantiguaWilliams.com or PodcastingSeriously.com. If you can donate $20, $5, whatever amount you can to the fund, it is deeply appreciated. And it will go directly 
to an indie producer. So you can find, you can donate directly on our website. Uh, if you're an institution and you'd like to make a bigger donation, we can always go through AIR, our fiscal sponsor. So you get your tax receipts mm. for that. We've done that multiple times. That is absolutely an option. If you're an individual, you can donate on Patreon. Um, you can donate on Buy Me a Coffee. Just look for Podcasting Seriously Awards Fund. Amazing. Well, and I'll put that on the show notes too, so it's easy for everyone to find. Yes, of course. Well, Julika, thank you so much for your time. This was such a fun interview. I I can't wait to listen back and edit. That's that's always such such a good time. Oh, Oh, it'll be great. It'll be great. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This was really a blast. Our original music is produced by Carrie Blue. And everything else is produced by me, myself, and I, Miss Alexandra Cole. And you can follow me on Instagram at Podraland, P-O-D dot D-R-A-L-A-N-D, or Twitter at Podraland, minus the period. And you can find more of what I do on Podraland at www.podraland.com, where I recommend women-hosted podcasts and feature indie women podcasters. So I hope to see you there. Feel free to subscribe to the newsletter. You'll get recommendations and updates about this podcast. And finally, make sure to share this episode, tag us in it, like that shit, give us a review. Anything you do helps not just this podcast get more exposure, but also helps these women's voices be heard by way more people. And ultimately, that's our goal. So let's fucking do it.